Good morning. As uh, you turn this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which will be our first passage we'll read together as we start this morning. I just had two quick announcements. Um, I know that there's a lot in the media today about the upcoming elections, and I'm not here to debate with you uh, to, uh, regarding your conviction of whether you should vote or not. You know, you won't find a command there because they didn't vote for people like Nero in those days. Uh, but uh, someone has graciously brought in some explanatory papers as to what some of the issues are that are going to be on the ballots. And we're not endorsing any particular candidate here. But what I wanted to tell you is uh, they sent some questionnaires to some candidates, basically asking them where they stood on various issues. And their responses, and if they even responded, is listed on a piece of paper in the back there on that table. As many as are there, we can make more copies if you need one. Uh, and also the thing that I always find very puzzling is what exactly do these amendments mean? And uh, what they've also done is tried to explain what a yes no, what a yes vote or a no vote means in regards to the amendments on the upcoming election. And so if you're interested in that, they are back there, and uh, you can pick one up and take that home and review it uh, as you feel inclined to do so. Now, uh, something else that Emmaus Bible College has, uh, what they say, and I've never researched the others, is perhaps the largest Bible correspondence ministry in the world. I think it's upwards of 50 languages that they have courses in. And uh, it's the courses that the prisoners use in our set-free prison ministry uh, outreach from here. And we see quite a number of people come to know the Lord. Well, these books, some of them are pretty old, written by uh, people who are trying to break down the concepts of Scripture to very simple pieces with little uh, multiple-choice tests at the end of each chapter. Of course, if they haven't read the book, they're not going to do very well. But if they do then they can be encouraged that they're understanding the Word of God and they go through these courses. Well, the challenge has gone out to assemblies like ours across the country at the beginning of each year since, I mean, let's, let's just take a little poll. How many people here have actually done one of the courses in the correspondence school ministry? Very few, right? Some of you are actually grading the, the, the uh, courses and um, even though you may not have taken the course, you've probably got some of those answers memorized. You've seen them so many times, right? And helping these people understand. But uh, I've seen this challenge come out the last couple of years, seeing if any of the local churches would be willing, if there's enough people to participate, to go through the course on your own, but then we'll send our grades in to uh, Emmaus Bible College, and um, they'll give us certificates for completing it. We can see how our completion rate matches the other uh, local churches around the country who participated, even telling how our overall grade is as a class. Um, but it's not so overwhelming. But the reason I thought I'd like to do this year's course is it's on the selected psalms. Uh, there's a number of psalms written, especially the Messianic psalms about Christ, that once you begin to understand them really are beautiful and helpful in your daily life. And, and I know the psalms is a place I go to often for encouragement and comfort uh, in my daily life. And so I thought, you know, I'd like to do this particular course on the psalms. It's 12 lessons, 12 weeks starting uh, in January. So if you would like to be a part of that, just see me. I'll put your name on here. We'll get the books, and um, uh, we'll start that in January. And the thing I thought was neat about it is, you know, as we prepare ourselves midweek for coming to the Lord's Supper, uh, maybe you wonder sometimes, especially the brothers, you know, how do I take what I'm reading and, and gather thoughts to be able to come prepared with something to share at the Lord's Supper? And uh, if you've wondered that, you've struggled with that, and you want some help, I believe that this will be a helpful course for that 
and um, would, would be a help in our personal lives and as well as our corporate life together. And so um, if you have questions about that, see me later. But by now, I hope you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's just begin our time together in the Word of God with prayer. Father, we want to thank you again for calling out from amongst the, the world of people, people for yourself, whom you have chosen to mark with a, do, a new destiny, eternal life, you called it, to know you, to walk with you, beginning right now and in through all eternity. And we thank you that you've given us this place in the local church where we can gather together to be an encouragement to one another so that we can be a help in seeking to walk with you ourselves, at raising our children, at handling our finances, at, at just learning to know you, whatever it might be. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom of this country where we can do that. And we just want to pray that you would preserve this freedom for many years to come and that we would maximize the opportunities that you provide us to share the gospel with those who have yet to believe. For we know that although this was founded by many people and, and uh, of years gone by who knew you and desired to walk with you, that uh, every new generation needs to be evangelized from scratch all over again. And so here we find ourselves in our day. And we ask that our time in your word today would help us in the work that you've called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing in this uh, uh, series about the New Testament church. And basically what we're talking about is what we see practiced in the local churches in the Bible so that we can see the pattern that is there so we can learn what God would be looking for from us. And basically, our charter for this comes from Acts 2.42. From the very day of the birth of the church in, at the day of Pentecost, this verse tells us what those new believers did. 3,000 souls were added to the church, but it says they continued steadfastly. That means they continued on consistently in this. In the apostles' doctrine, that's the teaching that the apostles gave them from Christ. And also in fellowship, spending time with one another, sharing the things that they had in common in Christ. And in the breaking of bread, which we did this morning, the communion, taking the bread and the wine, uh, in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they came together in prayers. And that's what we try to do throughout each week, is to provide an opportunity for teaching, for being together for fellowship, for breaking the bread and worshiping the Lord, and in prayers. And so that's why we have the meetings that we do spread out throughout the week to be able to facilitate continuing steadfastly ourselves in this. But notice the apostles' doctrine. The teaching that the apostles gave formed a cornerstone for what the early church practiced. And that's where we get our... Um, uh, uh, we're trying to get back to that today in, in our day and age to see what those things were and not be... Uh, uh, and give equal... No, we don't want to give equal emphasis to mere tradition of our culture. We want to see where the Scripture speaks authoritatively beyond culture. And um, we've touched on a number of things. And today's message centers around what we're calling the symbolic commands of the church. Symbolic commands. Um, because each of the, the, the three areas of local church life that we want to touch today are symbols. Now, the thing about symbols is, is that the symbol itself does not have any special or, or, or magical power to it. And the one that I like to refer to, I don't even know if I can get it off this morning. Maybe that's okay. All right? My wedding ring. It's a symbol. All right? Now, putting on the wedding ring does not make me married. 
There's a lot of people out there. I've seen some. They'll put on a ring to keep, I guess, especially girls who do this, to keep the guys from coming around because they want them to look at the ring and say, oh, they must be married and they stay away. That's probably a good thing. But but the symbol communicates something. Now, it doesn't make the person married. Now, I can be married and not wear a ring. And there are people who say, well, listen, the Bible doesn't tell us that we need to have one of those, and so they don't. And there may be convictions about it. There may be very simple things. I remember when I was at Sprint, uh, a lot of the guys would take off their rings while at work because reaching back into these electronic devices, they could short-circuit and and, and kill themselves. Uh, And so, good idea to be careful wearing your ring in those circumstances, right? But, but, But being married... And not having a ring doesn't change whether or not you're married. But having that reality, being a married person, and then having the symbol helps to go together to be a testimony to that reality, a witness to that reality. And so if <laughs> it's staying there, and that's a good thing, right? Sometimes, now, now symbols help us in life, right? There are times when, uh, like a couple weeks ago, I went on a conference and I was gone for the week from my family and I'm sitting there and... I would see my ring, it would remind me, my wife's at home. My wife loves me. She covenanted to stay with me till death do us part. And that's what my ring reminds me of, the love of my wife for me. And the promise we made one to another. And she's got one too, right? And so uh, they are meant to help us as we go through life. A lot of smiling for that area. <laughs> for good reason. <clears throat> well, There are lots of symbols that the church uses. There are lots of traditions that churches have. But what we want to talk about today is a word that comes up sometimes called ordinances. What are the ordinances or traditions of the church that are practiced? And some churches have a lot, some churches have a few. But what we want to do is find out what the biblical traditions are, the biblical ordinances that God has given to us. And the symbolic commands that we want to talk about today that falls in this category are these three. Water baptism, the Lord's Supper, or sometimes called the communion, and head coverings. All of them are symbols. Now, as we said, right, participating in any of these will not make a person a Christian. Just like me going and standing in my garage doesn't make me a car. Right. But if I'm a car, it would make sense to find me in the garage. And so uh, people who come to church and they are baptized, you know, if they don't know the Lord as their savior, if that reality is not there, this symbol doesn't do anything for them, but make them not just a sinner, but a wet sinner. And those who come and participate of the Lord's Supper and they come to the church and they see the bread and they see the wine and they come and they partake of it. Now, there are some groups of people claiming to be Christians who will tell them that that has saving value and that they will find themselves having eternal life because they participate in it. But that's not true according to the Bible. And the very first example I would give you is Judas Iscariot. I was looking at this because I want to make sure. And you know, two of the Gospels are clear that the Lord Jesus, as they took the Passover meal together, he used part of that evening's meal as he pulled aside a piece of bread and the cup of wine and told the people that they represented his body that he was going to give for them on the cross the very next day. And he told them, do this and remember me. And he passed it around. Well, you know, Judas was still there. It wasn't until after that that he left and he was possessed by the devil himself and betrayed the Lord, turned turn him over to the authorities and the Lord was crucified the next day and Judas went out and hung himself. 
But the Bible still calls him the son of perdition, the son of judgment. He never belonged to Christ. He was not saved. And I believe you can prove that from Scripture in other places. So participating in the Lord's Supper is not going to give you eternal life. But is it good to participate in the Lord's Supper? Yes. To those who appreciate the fact that the Lord Jesus died for us, gave his body, poured out his blood for us, it's a precious symbol. And so we desire to practice it. And of course, the head coverings, they won't get you saved either. They won't even make you more submissive just by putting one on your head or by not putting one on your head if you're a man. But if you have a submissive heart and any one of these categories, we would want to obey the commands of the Lord, even if it's just symbolic. I, don't, I shouldn't use the word just, right? But it doesn't have any magical capabilities. But they are commands given in Scripture. They're, te- they're taught by the apostles. They're practiced. And so they call them symbolic commands. Now, the word ordinance is sometimes used in relation to these things. And I, wanted to, I looked up that word. What does it mean? Now, an ordinance is simply an authoritative command. We have ordinances at the city. It says... You can do this when you build a house. You have to have these setbacks. It can only be this. And there's a lot of ordinances in our society. And, but an authoritative command is what that word is. Now, you know, when you look in the scriptures, and I think by now you've turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the word that's translated ordinance in the King James is mentioned there, and I'd just like to talk about it. 1 Corinthians 11.2, and I'm reading from New King James, and it says this, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions or the King James would say ordinances just as I delivered them to you. The word ordinance is a synonym for tradition. The word actually comes from the Greek paradosis, which means something delivered or handed over to somebody. And so the thing that I think is interesting, the more I study Paul and the more I look at these Greek helps, I realize he had a tremendous sense of humor over and over again. And the book of Corinthians is, is ripe with these puns. And so if you're into puns, I would encourage you to, to, to look into some of these things. Basically, what he says to them is, I, I praise you that you remember me in all things and keep the delivered things just as I delivered them to you. And so he uses these plays on words throughout his writings. And so what he's talking about are these traditions, these, these things that he says, I received from the Lord. Let's, let's take a look here. First Corinthians chapter 15. Chapter 3, or excuse me, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the Twelve. And it goes on to talk about the proof of the resurrection, how he himself even saw the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, he says, I received this from the Lord and I've now delivered it to you. He says the same thing back here in 1 Corinthians 11, speaking of, and we're going to get there, of the Lord's Supper, verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So what is he saying? There are things that I have received from the Lord and I pass them along to you. And he says, I praise you because you are practicing those. And as so much as they were not practicing them, what did he say? Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you do not come together for the better, but for the worse. There's a problem there. And so he says, you're not practicing the traditions as they were given to you. And so I cannot praise you for that. They're important. There are commands being given. And he's talking about them. And uh, uh, 
Some people would say, well, he's just teaching things. How, how do we know it's, it's, it's really a command, all these things? Well, if you just flip again to, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, a few pages to your right, he concludes this series of chapters talking about when the church comes together, when you come together as a church and the practices that you're doing. <clears throat> he concludes this whole section of chapters in verse 37. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are what? The commandments of the Lord. So not just suggestions for us, they're commands, and so we want to try to practice them. Now, here's what I, 13 times in the New Testament this word is used, and, and it's translated everywhere else except this one time, traditions. And so we don't feel like you've got to use a different word, ordinance, but I think the reason they like the word ordinance is this. Tradition. I can hear myself uh, uh, hearing that uh, fiddler on the roof coming back to me. Tradition, tradition. <clears throat> it dominates cultures. It dominates our own. We don't even realize sometimes the traditions that we have taken up just by the fact that we keep doing them. We don't think about them. But what we want to identify is the difference between man's tradition and God's tradition, what he has delivered to us to practice. Because you know what? If it's just human tradition... Let's let it go. If we need to, let it go. If it's a hindrance to following Christ, let's let it go. But the commands of God are never going to be a hindrance to us obeying and following the Lord. We want to hold to those to the very end. So we want to know the biblical traditions. Um, he says in Second Thessalonians 2, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. So how do we, derive, how do we end up with these three things that we said this morning we'd like to talk about, these symbolic commands. Interesting that all of them are symbols. But because the church started adding all these traditions, they, they said, how do we know which ones God wants to, to, to keep? And so this was the three questions that they asked to determine what are the ordinances or traditions of the church that we call biblical traditions that God wants us to hold. Number one, were they commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Number two, did the early church practice it? And number three, was it expounded or further taught in the epistles? Because the epistles give us the spiritual meaning behind many things. And so were these traditions expounded on in the epistles? You know, I used to ask myself the question, John chapter 13, I love that chapter where Jesus gets the towel and he goes and he washes his disciples' feet. And, and, and he says to them, you see what I've done for you? You know, you need to do that for one another. And I asked myself, well, why aren't we doing that? I mean, yeah, we, we, we don't wear sandals and it's not dirt roads out there, but Jesus said to be washing each other's feet, so why don't we do that? Well, you know, as I put it up to these three questions, what do I see? Well, did the Lord command it? Well, he did say wash their feet, right? Okay, but did the early church practice that as a biblical tradition? No. Is it further taught in the epistles? Did Paul say, listen, I've taught you the things that God gave me. Make sure that when you come together, you keep washing each other's feet. No. Now, I've been places when we were over in Africa and, oh, man, we had these smelly boots that we wore because we were doing construction. They required us all to have them. And after two weeks doing all this work all day long in those boots, whoo-wee, <clears throat> they were ripe. And I remember we went to this new outreach in, a, in the midst of mud huts. And, and there was a church there that was doing evangelism and we were there to help them. And, and, and the leaders of the church who were there to receive us that night we came off the bus and we were getting ready to pitch our tents and unpack our stuff. They came in. They said, we're, we're, they fed us dinner. Or they were going to feed us dinner. They said, just come on inside the building. And while we were sitting there, suddenly they came in and we're wondering, okay, 
uh, what's going to happen here. Next thing you know, they're sitting there with towels and basins of water, and they wanted us to take off these smelly boots and wash our feet. And boy, oh boy, I didn't want to do that. Boy, that's humbling, you know. My smelly toe jam feet. And they're over there washing them. But, you know, it was humbling and it was a blessing to realize, hey, they, they appreciated us. They were there to serve us while we were there to serve them. And I thought, what must have been it like for, for them to let Jesus wash their feet? And what, what is God asking me to do in regards to my brothers and sisters in Christ? But we don't practice that as a church, but I don't believe we need to. It doesn't meet these basic qualifications. And oftentimes you'll see them, okay, Christ commands in the Gospels, the Acts, and then the Epistles there. But, okay, so the first one we're going to get to is water baptism. Now, was it commanded by Christ? We don't have to go far. Matthew 28, very famous passage of Scripture, the Great Commission, we call it, right? Where Jesus' words to his disciples after the resurrection, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and... Go and make disciples of all the nations. When they make disciples, these people begin to follow Christ and believe in him. What does he say to do? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He commanded them to do that. And then he further went on and said, and now teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And so they were supposed to teach their disciples. Now you go out and make disciples of all the world. And when they trust in Christ, you you baptize them and teach them. And so the command is going on. So Christ commanded this. And it's interesting when we get to Acts chapter 10. It wasn't just the Jews now, but when Peter goes to Cornelius and he preaches the gospel and the Holy Spirit falls upon them, the first, it says, he commanded them to be baptized. They weren't Jews. It wasn't just a Jewish practice. This is transcending culture. It was commanded by Christ. And and now, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. I meant to move that down here to where it was practiced by the apostles. Okay? The apostles were practicing it. And if, if you don't... Now... I have some friends that um, have a slightly different interpretation on some of the books of the Bible. And they said, water baptism is not for today. Okay? There's one baptism, and it's spirit baptism, and water baptism we make two. And so it's not, it's not meant to be practiced. Well, I believe that there is one baptism. Ephesians 4 tells us so. But the real spiritual reality is the spirit baptism. Before we can continue with water baptism, can I just highlight this? 1 Corinthians 12. Now, this term is so confused in our society today, right? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. People who, who are a part of what might be called charismatic or Pentecostal churches will use this term a lot, but they're taking two different actions of the Holy Spirit and lumping them together under one term, and they call it being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the, this, the Word of God would say there's a difference between being baptized by the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is we're commanded to do, right? Ephesians chapter 5 says, keep on being filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. We want Him to control us to overflowing in our daily lives. But the baptism of the Spirit, look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. It says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body, of that one body being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks and whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Look what he says. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The moment we trusted in Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit baptized us into Christ. Now, there's two things that I want to highlight what what, what I think the, the, the scripture means when it says this. The word baptism really is a transliteration of the actual Greek word baptizo, which basically comes from the root word meaning to dip. And so when you dip something into a liquid, right? Yes, you are 
putting it into it, right? And, and so it goes into the water. That's the first idea. I believe the, the Holy Spirit, it says, puts us into this one body of Christ. Almost like if I had a pitcher of water and I had an ice cube and I dropped the ice cube into the water, it would be baptized, dropped into the water. And the thing I like about the ice cube, see, is it would it would become part of the pitcher of water to where you could no longer differentiate one from another because it's all one. You see, we as believers, when we trust in Christ, the spirit baptizes us into the one body of Christ. And so that's why Ephesians 4 said there's one baptism, one body, one Lord, one God and Father of all. We're all one in Christ when we put our trust in him. But there's another meaning of this baptism of the spirit. See where it says there's a uniting that takes place in the baptism. For example, if I was going to make a tie-dye shirt, I'd have the liquid of dye and I have my shirt, two different entities. But when I dip the shirt into... I put it into, baptize it into the liquid. The two become united. So that when I take the shirt out to look at it, I no longer see dye or white shirt. I see colored shirt because they have been united and they can't be separated again. And see, the Bible says that the spirit of God baptizes us into Christ. And what does he do when he does that? This is going to form the spiritual reality. I'm not going to wait to go through it. If you'll turn with me just uh, to Romans chapter six. This is what's talked about in Romans chapter 6. The spirit baptism. What happens when a person trusts in Christ? <clears throat> if you want the rest of these verses, we'll come back to, well, we will have to come back to them and to, to mention some particulars about baptism that cause some confusion. But these are all places in the book of Acts where the baptism was specifically mentioned as practiced. And we'll have more comment on that. But there's no doubt about it. It was practiced by the apostles, including Paul himself. We already read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, I didn't baptize very many, and I'm glad I didn't because of all the confusion that's going on there about I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and all that. But it was practiced by them. What does it mean? What was, it, what was being taught in the epistles when water baptism was being talked about? Well, it's a picture of the gospel. What happens when someone gets saved in Romans chapter 6? Well, Romans 6 tells us, okay, let's read it. Starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been, get this word, united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. One more. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now stop right there. He says, Jesus was alive, but then he died and was buried. But then he rose again to walk in newness of life. 
When a person comes to know Christ as their Savior, they are a sinner dead in their transgressions and sins. But when they put their trust in Christ and are united to him, the Bible says that spiritually, since we've been united with him, since Christ died, our life before God has also now died. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again. And so now when I trust in Christ, my old life is dead and gone. I'm no longer a captive to sin because of my old nature. I'm given a new nature, which is now united with Christ. And I can walk in newness of life just like Christ because he's died and death no longer has control over him. And neither does it have control over me. And so if this is true in my spirit, water baptism now pictures this spirit baptism. Basically, we, we, we hold, we, this is why we practice immersion. This is, uh, you, know, you know what I find very interesting? All three of these symbolic commands have been attacked so hard by the enemy. Even bringing the various viewpoints into practice within true believers, arguing over what the Bible teaches. And so some would say, no, it's not immersion, it's pouring and, 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 and effusion, but, but, but sprinkling. But, but without getting into that, well, the reason we practice immersion is because, first of all, what we believe the word baptize means to dip. And the practice that we see in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch in particular, they went down into the water. Not just, they, could have, they didn't have to wait till water if they didn't need to go down into it. But anyways, when you immerse someone, what happens? You're standing here above the water, and then we put the person down under the water, symbolizing that old life being buried and dead and gone. And then we, we don't hold them under there too long. We bring them back up so that they're alive and they can walk in newness of life. Do they gain that new life by doing it? No, they've already got it. The spirit baptizes when we trust in Christ, but it's a symbol, a picture. And so that spiritual reality, if we possess it, God commands us to go through the water baptism. You're a follower of Christ? Then then publicly show on the outside what God has done to you on the inside. You know, I remember being at a camp when I was in college and there was a young boy from Japan who had come to learn English. He was learning about Christ more than he was learning English, but he was getting both. And I remember one day he asked us, he said, if I trust in Christ, do I have to tell anybody? Because he knew that he would be disowned by his family if he trusted in Christ. Being baptized publicly for the name of Christ. In our country, it may not be a big deal. But in some countries, it'll cost you your career, your family, or your life. But they're doing it because of the love they have for Christ for what he's done for them. Because they see it as a command. And you know, we don't ask everyone to understand all this to be baptized. You know what we ask them? Do you understand what it means to be saved? Because if you profess Christ as your Savior and you understand that it's a command from him and you want to obey him, let's go. Because what are we telling someone? No, 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 we're going to watch you for a while to make sure that you really know Christ. And we don't want you to obey Christ yet in this. You know, we want to watch you in other areas of your life first. Does that make any sense? Don't obey the Lord so we can see if you obey the Lord. In fact, in the Bible, the, the, the longest period of time between someone professing Christ and being baptized is three days. And that was the Apostle Paul because he had been going to Damascus to kill them for Christ. And now he says he's a believer and no one believed him. But then Ananias went and prayed for him and Paul was baptized. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a symbol. 
But it's a, it's, it's a glorious symbol of what God has done in our lives. He's given us new life through faith in Him. Now, who should be baptized? Clearly, it is believers in Jesus Christ. That's what it said in Acts 2, 4, 41 and 42. Those who believed were baptized. And <clears throat> all those passages that were in that previous slide, it's unbelievable. It was uh, uh, Jews, Samaritans, Roman citizens, this Ethiopian eunuch, <clears throat> every different walk of life, people put their trust in Christ, but they were baptized. The thing that I think is interesting is this. Acts chapter 8, verse 13. There's a story of when Stephen goes to preach the gospel in, Sam in uh, Samaria, and he preaches, and in verse 12, it says that many people began to believe his word, and it says that they were baptized. But it makes special note of this. Simon himself, who was a magician, who had performed these demon-possessed tricks to the people, that he had power over the people. It says, he himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, if you continue reading that chapter, I've always come to the, with, to the end of the chapter with a question. Was he really saved or not? The, the rebuke that comes from the apostles when he wants to pay money to receive the Holy Spirit, they said, they, they rebuked him, and, and he says, may you perish with your money. Well, is he saved or not? Well, you know, even the apostles themselves, upon his profession of belief in Christ, they baptized him. Does that make him a true believer now just because we put... No! It's just a symbol, but doing it in obedience to Christ, we want to encourage people to obey Christ. And if the, if the reality is not there, well, then when they really trust in Christ... They'll say, you know what? I, I never trusted Christ before. I, I just got wet. I want to I do it again to tell people the right, that, that I really am saved now. And, you know, we've done that here. There was, uh, uh, um, okay to use names, right? Many of you know um, Konya. She was taught that in order to be saved, she had to be baptized. So she not only was trusting in Christ, but, but in going into the waters to be baptized as part of her salvation. And after coming here and hearing the word of God, she said, but wait a minute. That's not what I did. I was trusting in something more than Christ. And so she came to us and said, now I understand. I want to be baptized again. Because now I understand what really happens. And you know, that's what happened in the, in the apostles too. It tells us in, in Acts, I believe it's 19, that when Paul was uh, uh, traveling, there was these disciples of John. And they were now believing in Christ, but they'd never been baptized. And he said, no, wait a minute. Uh, what baptism did you have? They said, well, we were baptized baptism and he said well that was a baptism of repentance you're turning your heart towards god but his repentance was saying get ready so with the one who's coming after me he's the messiah believe in him and so they never they'd never been baptized in christ so what did they do they baptized them again but this time in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit like the the word of god says and so only believers should be baptized those who profess faith themselves you know this is why we don't baptize infants and I've been to ceremonies where, where uh, I always wondered what they actually said at these things. But I heard the man say when he sprinkled some water over this infant who couldn't even say gaga yet. And said that because he was baptized into the body of Christ, he had eternal life and was a child of God. And I know I've talked to people. They believe they are saved because some priest has pronounced them saved because of baptism, because of that water and not because of faith in Christ. I don't want to start my child believing they're saved on their way to a, a lost eternity because we sprinkled water on them. And so it's not the practice of the, of, the, of the church. In fact, every passage where it mentions someone's whole family, 
being baptized, it says that they also believed. Yes, it may have been their whole family believing at the same time, and so that's why their whole family was baptized at the same time, but it was because of personal faith in Christ. And uh, that's why we always say, of the, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, when we do that, oh boy, how did I do that? Let me just say this about water baptism. It's a one-time event. Spirit baptism is a one-time event. And so how do we remember that? We have this symbol, but the symbol itself even is a one-time act. Now, the spirit baptism is an event, is an act of God. But water baptism is an act by the believer. And so I would just like to say, if you're here today, are you a part of the body of Christ? Have you been baptized by the Spirit, placed into the body of Christ because you've put your faith in Him alone to save you from your sin? Well then, have you experienced water baptism to show on the outside what God has done on the inside? If not, hey, listen. I, I saw someone was talking about how people put saving value in it. They said the only, the only saving benefit of water baptism is this, is that it cleanses you of an evil conscience. A guilty conscience before God for having not obeyed his command. That's the only thing that water baptism will wash you of and save you from is a guilty conscience for not having obeyed this command of God. It won't save you, but it's a beautiful symbol of what can be yours or hopefully already is in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't have time to even get on. I apologize. I said, I'm going to write these things down so I don't try to give you everything on every topic. But I'm just going to zero in so I can get through them all, and I, I didn't do it. But uh, uh, this evening, uh, after whatever questions are done, we're going to go back and look at these two symbols. Uh, the Lord's Supper, head covering. We won't cover everything, okay? But I hope that you will see, hey, did the Lord command it? Did the early church practice it? And you can write in your Bible and see where. And what are the spiritual lessons taught from the scriptures regarding it? Father, we thank you so much that we have something to show the world. Not about us. Because all we've got to offer is a, a, a guilty, sin-riddled, dead spirit. But when we turn to you, and you unite us to Christ... Oh, how you liberate us from this body of sin. And you deliver us into... Your, your word says you, we are passed out of death into life. And we, we are yours. And we have the ability to turn away from sin, to walk in newness of life, just like Jesus did. And Father, I pray that you would help us to walk that way in this world in which we live. That whether it be the spiritual realities on the inside or the outward portrayals in our lives on the outside, that they would be testimonies, witnesses of Christ in this world in which we live. Help us to hold to your biblical traditions and not simply to our own human traditions that we might be the church like you patterned for us in the New Testament. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat>